0: And welcome to the Let's Talk Transformation Podcasts. In this episode, we will be discussing transformation and how to make it sustainable at all levels, individual, team and organizations and, in fact, society as a whole. I'm delighted to welcome Ian Ziskin, who's been pioneering and researching for over 40 years and is also somewhat of a chef, but we'll come back to that. So he has been pioneering and researching leading transformation for many years now. Ian, welcome to the show.
1: Great to be with you, Susie. Thanks for having me.
0: Pleasure. Thank you for accepting. Ian, you've helped countless uh, executives grow their leadership and effectively navigate organizational change, as well as develop the human strategy. And you have written and co-authored four books, and you're also the co-founder and leader of the Consortium for Change, which is a community of uh, coaches and consultants using collective intelligence to address change and the future of work. So something that is majorly needed, especially today. But I would like to focus on your latest book, uh, co-authored by yourself and the Consortium for Change, called The Secret Source for Leading Transformational Change. So this is why I was alluding to your culinary talents. So we will be discussing discussing sauce. We will also be discussing pizza, I think. I bet our listeners are thinking, oh, I think I've got the wrong podcast. (laughs) But you haven't got the wrong podcast, so stay with us. So this is a compendium of essays that were written and co-authored and co-created by the uh, Consortium for Change, and it's a mix of conceptual and operational approaches around leading and sustaining transformational change. So my first question has to be around the secret sauce, and like every good chef would do, let's take a look at the ingredients, and I would love to start with the Spirit of Abundance. So to frame the whole subject, what is the Spirit of Abundance and why does it help us, Ian, to frame this subject? Well,
1: the Spirit of Abundance is actually one of the operating principles that we use in running this Consortium for Change, which, Mm -hmm. uh, for your listeners, just to clarify, is a collection of about 75 independent coaches and consultants that do a lot of work in the coaching of leaders, but also leadership development. And as you might imagine, quite a bit of work in the leading change Mm. space. And the way we operate this group, which uh, also we think has good applicability to the idea of leading transformational change, is this concept of spirit of abundance, which basically means for us, learn from uh, and share with and collaborate Mm. with other people for collective Uh, benefit and good, uh, which has huge spillover effect to the whole concept of leading transformational change as it Mm. relates to what can you learn from others in your organization, uh, others from outside of your organization? What role do you play in in teaching and promoting and advancing the Mm. cause of change turns out to be one of the fundamental ingredients for successfully leading transformational change. Mm.
0: And I think, you know, your book is a living example of practicing what you preach, it's a living example of that, of how rich an amount of information you can get in a small space when you co-create and you collaborate with people. So if I come on to a second operating principle or ingredient, which is one of the first chapters on from what to what. So can you share with us your story of from what to what and why it's important? For me personally,
1: as the, the lead author of the book, I hope all, all of us learn from uh, life and experience. Mm-hmm. And I think that the same would be true for myself. Turns out, you know, when I was uh, much younger uh, a kid, uh, about the age of 11, my father was diagnosed with uh, multiple sclerosis, which he battled for a couple of years, mm-hmm. uh, eventually succumbed to uh, complications of MS and, and passed away when I was Thirteen, and he was uh, actually just shy of his forty seventh birthday. Now, anybody who's been through that type of experience mm. with a parent or a loved one knows that it can be, you know, life changing in a lot of ways, and, and mm. certainly traumatic. And it was those things uh, for me, but it also was an opportunity, even at that uh, young age of thirteen, to step back and try to think about what is this going to mean for the rest of mm. my life? How am I going to respond to this tragedy? Uh, Will I use it as an excuse? Or will I use it as fuel and motivation to, you know, try to be the best person I can be and Mm. and lead the best, most productive life I can lead? Now, I guess I'll have to leave it to other people to judge uh, how (laughs) successful I was. But certainly my motivation, you know, very clear to me at that time, was to try to make lemonade out of lemons, so to speak, and and make it the the best, most positive experience that I could learn from, even though it wasn't a very good uh, or enjoyable experience. And all of that thinking kind of led me many years later to this concept of the importance of from what to what, which uh, from where I sit is actually the single most important question You need to ask as an individual or as a team or as an organization or perhaps even as a society in terms of driving large scale transformational change. We're going from something to something. Mm. uh, And and most organizations that I work with uh, actually tend to do a little bit better job of projecting to the future. Mm. You know, we will be a much better organization if and when we do the following things than they are at thinking back to what made us successful in the first place. Yeah. What are the characteristics and elements of our organization that we don't want to screw up along the way as Mm. we make other changes Mm. in the organization? What needs to be protected and preserved Kind of like the old saying about don't throw the baby out with the bathwater, <laughs> yeah. uh, and a lot of organizations tend to skip over all that. You know, mm. in the anticipation of or excitement associated with uh, making change for the future, and that's why I think this this notion of from what to what is really the most fundamental important question to answer when you embark on a, a large scale transformational change. Mm.
0: I think especially because you're looking at the existing. Or in, you know, in lean methodology, what we'd call the current state. But there are always things that are working well that you can take with you. And f- so that's the what. And the from that to what I like because it's outcome focused, isn't it? It's like, what is our creative future? Where are we going? And therefore, you can try and anticipate and build as you go. I like it because it's like the five whys of lean. So you can situate the from what to what at a strategic level or at a tactical level or at the level of a sort of lighthouse project that where you start small with change and just go from what to what and scale it from what to what, from what to what. from. So I really like the simplicity of the from what to what, even though it's profound in meaning, if you like.
1: Well, if I can add something to what you said, because I agree with uh, all of what you mm. did just say. Uh, there's also, a, I think, a fundamental assumption built in, which is uh, I've observed a lot of leaders who particularly when they're new to a job or new to an organization, use the philosophy, uh, maybe summarized by the American expression, a new sheriff in town, you know, where mm. their, whole, their whole belief system is, you know, I'm going to come in and prove to everybody that, you know, not only am I new, but I'm in charge, I know what I'm doing. Uh, mm. And part of establishing my my leadership is I'm going to start changing a bunch of things, yeah. you know, whether it's people around me or organizational practices mm. or the culture uh, and all the rest. And you know, that's all fine as long as you have some clarity about what needs to be changed and why, and recognize that most things that you're going to change are part of a much larger system. And therefore, changing one thing changes a whole bunch of other things, which you may or may not be anticipating. And you can create a lot of negative disruption as well as positive disruption by causing change to happen without having some clarity about why and what you're attempting to change and what the potential outcomes are. And, and that shorthand question of from what to what yeah. uh, implies all of those things and the importance of reminding yourself that you don't just make change for change sake because you're a new leader and attempting mm. to demonstrate that you're in charge.
0: And I think particularly if I go back to how you described it, the first step for you was distance. And I think that's really important, taking the time when we're busy and we want to change and we want visible change. And I think it's important to take that time to step back and think, okay, what am I doing? What are we doing and why? So that's and it brings me to uh, another point I wanted to discuss, which is navigating uncertainty, which is today's world for everybody, (laughs) but particularly leaders in organizations, as organizations are transforming all the time and being forced to transform all the time. I mean, COVID was a prime example for society. But if I look at the way the markets are moving, the way skills are developing, the way digital is um, exponentially changing things, organizations have no choice but to transform. And organizations don't transform, do they people do. So it's the people in them that are transforming. So it brings me to the idea of polarity management. And in your book, you give a list of seven polarities of how, you know, you have extremes all the time when you're navigating uncertainty and what you call the beauty of and. (laughs) And I was wondering if you could walk our listeners through the beauty of and in all its simplicity.
1: Well, as it turns out, you know, uh, for leaders, Mm. uh, particularly those who are going after uh, transformational change, There really is this requirement that you be able to master paradox, reconcile competing Mm. priorities or the polarities that you were just referring to, Mm. Susie. And so uh, a number of these things came through loud and clear in multiple different ways throughout the the book and the preparation for it. Uh, I'll just give you a couple of examples for uh, purposes of time, and uh, you let me know if uh, there's more you want me to talk about. But one that really stood out for me uh, in piecing the book together was the mastering the paradox of facts and feelings. You know, most organizations, as they they embark on big change, they try to rely on the facts that might substantiate the need Mm. for change. Mm. And there's all kinds of data out there that we can point to uh, that necessitates us making big change. One of the things that's fascinating about people is that we have this almost unlimited capacity to deny, deflect, yeah. ignore, diminish in some way facts that tend not to reinforce our preferred view of uh, yeah. the internal and external environment. So there's this whole element of, you know, are you paying attention to. The data that's actually coming at you is generally mm. surrounding us. Some people and organizations are much better than others at seeing and understanding and trying to incorporate that data or those mm. fact sets into our thinking about what needs to be changed. Uh, mm. Yet, um, human nature does tell us that uh, many people and organizations have this amazing capacity to ignore Uh, Or deny the data. Mm. Well, at the same time, the data is really important. There's another element that's that's uh, underpinning all of what we've been talking about that you alluded to, which is all the changes that you're making are, in fact, ultimately going to be made or not by people, Uh, and therefore feelings matter a lot. Uh, Mm -hmm. And you know what's in my head and what's in my heart in terms of embracing or not, uh, Mm. the kind of change that needs to be implemented here. Uh, One example I give in the book, uh, it's so so simple, I think most people around the world can relate to it, is the idea of uh, stepping on a scale and recognizing that perhaps it's time to lose some weight. You know, the the scale is staring back at us with data. You know, we get immediate feedback about how much we weigh. Yet it turns out, you know, the act of getting on the scale and being confronted with this data tells us absolutely nothing about whether or not we're going to embrace uh, the the things that typically are required to lose weight, which for most people is usually some combination of diet and exercise. Uh, And and discipline. uh, Yeah. So having the data is is a valuable first step. That's the facts. Mm. But you also have to have this other end. Which is the feeling behind it uh, that motivates you to pay attention to the facts, uh, accept their inevitability to mm. some degree, uh, and then actually go do something about it. That's much more about uh, feeling. Uh, and mm. uh, you have to have a combination of both. So, facts and feelings would be one example of uh, reconciling these polarities, as you call them, or mm. what I describe in the book as the beauty of end. Mm. Another one that I'll use for purposes of illustration for our conversation is speed and rhythm. So most people will tell you in an organizational change effort, especially when they reflect back on it uh, and look back in retrospect, you know, we should have and could have moved faster to Mm. drive the change. Uh, A Mm. lot of organizations suffer because they move too slowly and they're generally speaking too conservative Mm. about uh, changing things fast enough to really get the traction that's required to make a difference. So speed actually matters a lot, but Mm. so does rhythm, especially if you want to bring people along with you on the change journey, you have to be able to operate in a way that's more in sync than out of sync with uh, the other people who are yeah. going to help and contribute or might actually uh, resist the change. And uh, example I give in the book, I, I play a little bit of guitar, so I yes. have a little bit of experience with, with music. And one of the things if you talk to musicians, you know, they will tell you is rarely is a song improved simply by playing it faster and getting to the end more quickly. <laughs> you know, the, yeah. the song is really much more about, you know, where's the harmony is everybody on the same sheet of music? Uh, yeah. How are we integrating you know, one instrument with another mm. and voices as well? So that at the end, you have a sense of harmonious, beautiful music that's played in the appropriate rhythm, which is much different mm. uh, and much more beautiful music mm. than simply playing the song faster and getting to the end more quickly. And therefore, uh, whether it's music or large scale transformational change, it's really about... Uh, reconciling the the need for speed because there is that need uh, Mm. along with the need for rhythm and getting everybody on Mm. the same appropriate page of Mm. music so that we're operating in sync.
0: And Ian, I'm so glad you chose that one because I was fighting my own bias to actually bring that one up because I am a musician and I play in an orchestra and that one really spoke to me for the reasons you just mentioned of it's so tempting to just play the bits you can't play that well fast so that you just get to the end and, and you get to what you're meant to be playing but it, clearly it's not as harmonious as symphony if everybody in the orchestra does that so I love clearly I love the musical analogy but I also like the musical analogy because there's also a, a second level to this beauty of Anne for me which is listening and you know whether you're listening to what's going on in system if we take the organizational system or the team system are you listening to what's going on and what isn't going on so to what's being said and what isn't being said and I think the whole idea of polarity management and the beauty of and you can only have and if you listen so we're back to that distance thing of listening properly to yourself and to what's going on in the organization so thank you for picking up with the speed and rhythm because my bias would have put it in there and we chose the same one so that's great I
1: guess, guess we have the same biases yeah and, you know to to pick up on your point about listening if i could just enhance that uh, for a second because it came through in so many ways mm. as we were putting this book together generally speaking when you talk about the role of leaders in particular mm. Uh, in leading transformational change, it almost always comes down to some version of the overused word of communication. You know, when people yeah. will say communicate, 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 communicate. T- tell people. You know, why why there's a need for change, mm. and what you need them to do, uh, and that's all very valid. But what I found over and over and over again is that the importance of listening mm. far outweighs uh, the importance of telling. Yeah in successful transformational change you know understanding what's working well what's not working well what's Mm -hmm. getting in your way of serving customers or being efficient you know inside the organization is essential to figuring out what really needs to change and what your priorities are and the order in which you need to do things Mm -hmm. and so the whole concept of listening is certainly valuable for all leaders in a whole variety of different settings But if you're embarking on a very complicated, long-term transformational Mm -hmm. change effort, it becomes even more essential because uh, without listening well, you don't have much clue to uh, where you should be spending your transformation Mm -hmm. energy and time, especially if you're looking for and in need of getting insight from people who are a lot closer to the Mm -hmm. customer or to the problem than you typically are as a leader.
0: Mm, absolutely it's about how you get collective wisdom isn't it and I love the fact that so your book is split into individual team and organization the team part is called collective wisdom and that really spoke to me around just how much wisdom you can get from listening from listening to all the the diverse voices but actually going on the ground and understanding how your people are feeling and and what they have to say and the story you shared in the book about the CEO who shared his cancer diagnosis and all vulnerability with his um, team and his organization was so powerful for me in the the power of opening up and just trying something different and essentially being vulnerable. And it showed me the power of that on an individual level. And I've seen the power of it on a collective level. But how can we scale that? How can you scale that element of creating that space for change?
1: Well, yes, uh, that, that particular um, essay written by Marissa Harris, mm. one of our contributors to the book you know really spoke to me too uh powerful story Mm. of somebody dealing with uh, Mm. you know what you would think would be a a death sentence of Mm. pancreatic cancer and then being able to work your way through Mm. the personal changes uh, as a ceo as an individual human being but also uh, the responsibilities you have in running your organization and you know here's what i've learned about scaling those things you know one of the the elements of the secret sauce of if you will uh, that's come through in the book uh, is what uh, we ended up calling "Go First, but Not Alone," mm. and uh, the reason why um, I express it that way is because, as you would imagine, people have an expectation that you know leaders of transformational change are actually going to lead. You know, they're going to demonstrate <laughs> the um, mm. the need for change. Mm. They're going to role model it. They're going to take the actions that are required themselves you know as somebody you know in, in a contributor to the book expressed it transform yourself before trying to change others yep. right so you, so you have to lead and start there but uh we also found over and over and over again evidence that the best leaders of transformational change travel in packs they surround themselves with other people who can yep. help them execute on the train the change And and that's where you get the multiplier effect from. That's how you scale things, right? You set a tone as a leader, but you have to surround yourself with others who are as energized as you and as enthusiastic as you and have the skill sets required to do the things better Mm. or differently that in fact need to happen Mm. uh, in order to drive change. That's not the perfect answer. It's not the only answer, but frankly speaking, You know, almost everything that you're trying to scale in life uh, generally has to get done, you know, with and through other people because you can't do Mm. it by yourself.
0: Mm. And that's where purpose is so important, isn't it? Individual purpose. You're essentially looking for people on the same quest who get excited and upset, but who have a lot of emotion and passion for the same subject and want to move it forward. Now, you might not be moving it forward in the same way, but then that's what I think is interesting, that people do it differently, but that you have a common vision, if you like. And I know this was written during the pandemic, this book, and sparked by what Covid sparked uh, in in organisations and in people, and that we should take nothing for granted. And there's one of the essays. So I didn't say at the beginning, and we haven't um, been explicit for our listeners, that this is a compendium of very small essays, which is great. You just get nuggets of different subjects in the individual part, in the team part, in the organisation part. And... There's one around transformation through work with no jobs. Can you just give our leaders an insight into that concept of what, what it means for the future of work?
1: Yes, uh, happy to. Uh, it's an essay that was contributed by John Boutreau, a uh, former professor uh, at USC, who I've worked with for many years, and one of our mutual colleagues, uh, Jonathan Donner. And the, the the work around this actually comes from quite a bit of future of work. Work that uh, John Boudreau and and others uh, have done with Rob and Jesse Thawson, who's a consultant uh, at Mercer, and many others of us who've paid Mm -hmm. attention over the last uh, you know eight or ten years to the evolution of changing nature of work, workforce, workplace, and one of the things that's emerged from that uh, that that represents a huge transformational change in in how businesses uh, and organizations are run is this whole concept of, uh, as as they describe it, work without jobs, which basically means that work is increasingly becoming more bite-sized and Mm. nuggetized Mm -hmm. uh, with areas of, uh, you know, deep expertise in a Mm -hmm. particular subset of work. The jobs element uh, used to be, you know, I go to work for an organization, I have a job, I do the same job for, you know, 40 or 45 years, and then I retire. Increasingly, that model is going out the window, uh, not only because individuals are no longer going to be employees of the same organization Mm. for 40 or 45 years, but they may no longer be employees at all. They may be freelancers (laughs) and gig workers. and Uh, Supplemented by artificial intelligence and automation and algorithms and robotics and human machine learning. And so the way that the work is getting done increasingly is becoming a uh, smorgasbord, if you will, of different elements contributed by different kinds of people or technology Mm. that uh, we as leaders are going to have to weave together, Mm. you know, picking the appropriate pieces and elements of how the work should best get done through what kind of contributor, uh, Mm. you know, human being who might be an employee, who might be a freelancer, uh, who might be a subcontractor, et cetera, along with the insertion of the appropriate level of technology Mm -hmm. to enable the work. Well, when you add all of that up, um, it all sounds sufficiently unfamiliar and scary and disruptive that you you recognize that there's a lot that's changing and going to change over the coming years about how work gets delivered, which also means it will change a lot about how organizations are, Mm. in fact, organized and the models that we use to get Mm. work done. Those are really some of the fundamental premises behind this idea of work without jobs.
0: It's a whole different paradigm, isn't it? And if I lay on top of that, the skills question and how fast skills are evolving and the change in the skills model, because if I go back to your example, you used to learn at school and then deploy it at work for the whole of your career, whereas now skills are moving so quickly and the war for talent is moving so quickly that that brings even more uncertainty and disruption to that board. I like that idea of a smorgasbord. Yeah,
1: depending on who you believe, uh, you know, there's enough... <clears throat> potential disruption in this whole human Hmm. machine collaboration thing, by the way, some people would say rather than collaboration, it's more conflict, but, you know, depending on who you believe, Hmm. you know, Hmm. in some some, uh, subsets of work, Hmm. in some geographies around the world, uh, would not be unusual to find, you know, upwards of 70%, 70% unemployment. Uh, in certain uh, geographies or mm. sectors of the economy mm. because of this disruption. You know, of the course. good news is that all this disruption creates uh, new kinds of job opportunities for people that have never existed before. Mm. The bad news is, is that the skill sets of many of our current members yeah. of the workforce aren't aligned with where the new opportunities are going to be created. So, how quickly can we as organizations or societies get people reskilled? Mm. Uh, or newly skilled to step into, you know, these opportunities successfully, that's a big, big change in in life, you know, for the individual, Mm. but also for organizations and the societies that Mm. uh, are affected by the level of employment or unemployment Mm. or skill readiness or not of people in the workforce. Mm.
0: And I think it's important, isn't it? Because that's another paradigm shift for me, upskilling or reskilling, new skilling, is a language that doesn't invoke this quite as much, but is often seen in a negative way. So if I'm upskilling or reskilling, it's because you're not skilled enough, or you don't know what you should know. And I think this is part of the reframing of what's going to happen in organisations and in life in general. People need to upskill themselves, or learn and learn and relearn, if you like, all the time. And that's going to be part of the way our minds have to work, even though we're not wired like that, are we? So that that's quite interesting. That's everybody's challenge.
2: That's right. But
0: my question on that is, has that understanding and your experience of research has it changed your definition ian of transformational change uh you know how would you define transformational change and i know everyone has a different definition yes yes i, I think everybody does have a different definition
1: to some extent maybe that's just the nature of the of yeah. the beast you know I, I won't argue with anybody else's definition but the approach that i took in the in the book was uh kind of intentionally not to define it at the beginning of the book, Mm. but more toward the latter part of the book. Why? Because we really wanted readers to Mm. go through, get the benefit of all these different perspectives. Uh, By the way, you know, we've talked about these different perspectives a couple of times. We've become fond of calling the book 200 voices and under 200 pages. Uh Uh, I really like that. Because we shot for, Mm. you know, having a wide diversity of points of view about transformational change, but to try to write about it in a way that was sufficiently practical Mm. and pragmatic Mm. so that people didn't have to read, you know, four or 500 pages in order to get to the most important points that they Mm. could use practically in their lives or in their organizations but you know, as we got deeper into the book, uh, you know, I took a pass at defining transformational change from my perspective. Basically, it, to me, it involves completely rethinking uh, and beginning to reposition the, the what, the why, the how, the who, mm. the when, uh, and the where, you know, mm. associated with, with big improvement. Right. Mm. So to me, transformational change has this element or expectation of dramatically improving something mm. You know that that revolves around either the effectiveness or the happiness or the health mm. or the survival of someone or something. So whether you take this concept at an individual personal level or a team level, Mm. or an organizational level, or even at a societal level, you know, what's the long term sustained impact Mm. on either your, your effectiveness, or your happiness, or your health or the health Mm. of the organization, or long term survival, that survival could be, you know, you, the person uh, who who needs to make a, a radical change. Mm. Like the the cancer patient that we yeah. were referring to earlier, yeah. or it could be a, a society or a world that's wrestling with climate change, or you mm. know, pick your pick your favorite you know large scale problem that the world is facing, and how successful are we going to be at addressing that for uh, our long term mm. survival? So there's there's a certain element here. I think maybe the most important aspects here, uh, from my point of view, mm. are. Uh, it, it's got to involve some dramatic change yeah. and it's got to be somewhat long-term and sustainable. You know, there's plenty of change that exists in the world and it's it's valuable and needed that are more easily definable. They're tweaks. They have mm. a limited impact for a limited period of time. Doesn't make them any less necessary, but just differentiates them in my mind from uh, transformational change mm. that we tried to write about in the book.
0: Mm, absolutely. And I think everyone's had that moment when they've been driving change where they think, yeah, this is it, we've changed, it's there. And then you leave either the position or the community and they put it back to normal. You think, oh, it wasn't quite as sustainable as I thought. But it also, so the idea of survival and disruption and change brings me to cooking a pizza. So, hmm. <laughs> And I'm going to let you explain to our listeners why that's linked to pizza.
1: I found uh, you know, as I was looking at different um, industries and mm. analogies you know related to leading transformational change, mm. uh, pizza began to fascinate me, right? So one of the fundamental questions uh, trying to answer in the book is, what does pizza have to do with leading transformational change? Exactly. It, it, tur- <laughs> it turns out a lot uh, mm-hmm. you know, from my perspective, so let's just go back in history a little bit for some yeah. some context. You know, if you take it back to year 997 AD in Gaeta Italy uh, which is when pizza was thought to be invented uh, mm. and then you fast forward over uh, many centuries and many years there's been a tremendous evolution in pizza as a food uh, mm. and as an industry you know so yeah. today you know we look at it on a global basis it's about 150 billion dollar industry Globally, Mm. Uh, one of the things that I learned from writing the book that I I, uh, was not uh, fully uh, aware of or educated about was I had an assumption that uh, the United States of all places on a per capita basis would be the highest consumption of pizza in the world that turns out to be very wrong. Mm. Uh, It's actually Norway on a per capita basis. I'm surprised by that. That, Well, I've been to Norway a couple of times Mm. and I always remember, you know, very unscientifically thinking to myself, wow, there seems to be a lot of pizza places around here. But (laughs) I didn't didn't know if it translated to being the number one in the world. Mm. Well, it turns out that it does. Mm. And when you look at the evolution of pizza as an industry and as a food uh, and think about it in the following ways, shapes, Mm. sizes, toppings cheeses, crusts, different ways of preparing pizza, different outlets for getting access to pizza, and the constantly evolving, you know, secret sauces that are used yeah. in making a pizza, mm. what it what it starts to teach us is that, you know, pizza is not pizza, just like individuals or not individuals and teams are no longer teams and organizations are no longer organizations and same thing with societies mm. it's a constant repositioning reimagining repreparing yourself to be relevant yeah and over a you know very very long period of time you think about pizza as perhaps one of the most traditional foods Mm. for many of us around the world, particularly those of us who are uh, pizza lovers like me, Mm. yet you realize that in order for pizza to have survived for this long as a food and as an industry, it has necessitated a constant rethinking, repositioning, Mm. reimagining of the food and the the industry, and so you know, one of my favorite you know quotes that came out of all this is, uh, "Believe in yourself. If cauliflower can become pizza, you can become anything." I love uh, that and, quote. <laughs> and you know, I, I mean, I'm I, I'm a bit of a purist. I'll fully admit it. So there may be plenty of listeners to your podcast who think you know cauliflower crust is the greatest evolution in the history of pizza. I would say not so much. I'm uh, yeah. more of a traditionalist, but. Uh, It really does speak to almost the inevitability and need for constant evolution and repositioning and questioning. And one of the biggest dangers that I would um, encourage your listeners to think about is what are the traditions Mm. and long standing practices in your life or in your team Mm. or in your organization that might be jeopardizing the ability to actually see the need for uh, rethinking and reimagining and repositioning the things that have to happen in your life and organization in order to be successful. Because long-term traditional practices and maybe Mm. even the success that have come along with all of those Mm. are some of the biggest enemies to Mm. seeing the need and the reality associated with transformational change. Mm.
0: So that's the pizza analogy. I like that word. I've got a new word now in my in my vocabulary. The that, pizza that's analogy. Our, that's our
1: pizza analogy. That's exactly right.
0: <laughs> and I learned a lot about pizza and the history of pizza and the industry of pizza. And I must admit, whenever I have pizza since I've read the book, I think, oh, what what toppings on there? <laughs> just I'm getting curious now. <laughs> oh, I didn't ruin it for you, but <laughs> no, not at all. <laughs> I'm just more curious than I used to be about what's exactly. on my pizza. <laughs> and if I take the whole. Pizza analogy and the do's and don'ts of transformational change. You gave a whole section on do's and don'ts, which is really, really helpful around tips and tricks and your learnings. What are, what are your biggest learnings, Ian, personally, in the do's section and in the don'ts section?
1: Yeah, maybe I'll start with the don'ts first because yeah. that's actually how, um, how we addressed it in the yeah. book. I'll, again, I'll just you know, give a couple of examples yeah. of things that really jumped out to me. One of the biggest don'ts, I think is don't make people feel stupid or disloyal Mm. if they resist or push back on the change or ask tough questions, especially at first. Because those situations often, I think, are misinterpreted Mm. as, you know, these people are resistant to change. They're not on board. You know, they don't see things the same way we do. Mm. And in fact... You know, those individuals have to be overcome or maybe worse, you know, pushed aside Mm. when in reality they may be pointing out things with some healthy skepticism that need to be answered or addressed before we get too much further down the path Mm. of making this change happen. So to me, that's a really big one. Uh, The other one we've already talked about a little bit, but it's so important. I want to reinforce it, which is this idea of. Uh, ignoring data that doesn't reinforce our preferred view of the internal or external Thanks. environment but the reason why i mentioned it is because it turns out one of the most fundamental things you have to do in order to successfully lead transformational change is to uh, start with the truth and reality mm. you know actually mm. uh, understand what's happening internally and externally in your organization what's driving the need for Transformational change. What are mm. the elements, the uh, signals? You know, yeah. uh, very loud signals as well as the subtle signals mm. that are telling us that it's time. You know, we really mm. need to make a change. And if if your organization is really good at ignoring important data, and if you as an individual are really good at ignoring important data, you're going to really suffer. I think one of the the things that we learn over and over again in writing this book is that. Uh, Maybe the single most important thing you need to do in leading transformational change is to define truth and reality Mm. and confront it rather than ignore it or deny it. And so those are a couple of don't do's that I Mm. think uh, really came out Mm. over and over in the book. Now, uh, in terms of some of the things uh, to do, uh, first, let me I'm just going to share a personal learning for yeah. me, yeah, I'm a firm believer. When you write a book, uh, hopefully you'll be able to teach people something that they yeah. might not have known previously. But uh, you should also be learning something, right? Mm, and so I had I had a number of ahas and things that I learned <laughs> in, in writing this book. Uh, maybe the single most important of which was that uh, every book I've ever read on leading change, uh, in one way or another, addresses the question of: Is it really true that people Hate change, you know, because there's this at least this theory out Great there question. that you know, yeah. everybody hates change, right? Mm. Well, uh, I came to a conclusion. I'm not sure if it's right, but it's real for me, which mm. is I actually do think pe- people or most people hate change. Mm. Uh, but the the aha for me was that they hate failure even more, and therefore, if you can. Couch uh, the context of the change that you're trying to make happen from the perspective of what does it take for you as an individual or your team or your organization to win, you have a much better chance of getting even the most skeptical or reluctant or resistant people to possibly see the value. Mm. Of change, even though they might hate it. Mm -hmm. Uh, So the measure of success, Mm -hmm. I think, always is not, you know, do people love the change? They may never love the change, but do they understand it well enough Mm -hmm. to contribute to it uh, and embrace it enough to help uh, execute and make it happen? And a lot of that ties back to, I think, understanding the, the mentality of people, which is they might hate change, but I think they hate failure even more uh, and they love to win, generally speaking. Mm-hmm. And so anything we can do to teach people uh, about what it takes to win, uh, I think is extraordinarily important. Now, the only other thing I'll, I'll reinforce, and unless you have more questions about it, on some of the, the secret sauce ingredients that uh, I want to maybe take us back to uh, to mm-hmm. underscore is, is this idea of uh, love influencers and resistors, you know? So as I was just talking about a minute ago, Mm. uh, it's really important not to make people who are pushing back feel stupid or disloyal. Well, what it really is important to do uh, is to be able to demonstrate a certain amount of love and respect for people who are not only influencers, but also resistors in the organization. You know, we all have a tendency to look for the people who are gonna reinforce our view Uh, and seem like they're on board and are very supportive and are are active uh, embracers of the change that we're trying to lead, those people can be extraordinarily influential and very helpful in driving change because, as we said earlier, uh, you're not going to do it alone. However, uh, it turns out also the people who are resistors, at least at first, who generally do have tough skeptical questions and sometimes are thinking that being skeptical is actually a um, contribution that they can make by, by testing the sanity of what it is we're Mm. about to do. Mm. Uh, If we, if we marginalize those people too quickly, Mm. we will miss, you know, the messages that they're trying to send. So, you know, yes, if after repeated attempts to, get people to embrace the change, you feel like Mm. you need to change out certain people or work around them or drive over them, that becomes appropriate at a certain point, but not at the beginning. And I think Mm. sometimes leaders make the mistake of immediately ignoring people and marginalizing those who do not agree with their view or the need for change. And they miss a lot. uh, Back to our earlier conversation about the importance of listening, they miss a lot uh, if Mm. if they marginalize those people.
0: I was just going to say it brings us back to listening and to um, how important the environment you create is because you know a psychologically safe environment for me is not about never having threat or challenge it's not about the absence of challenge it's about the presence of connection so if you have a space where people are listening to each other where they're empathetic and where they can express themselves and be challenged healthily then I think that's where you get the real sort of Innovation that's happening because you get the whole picture as, as you just said,
1: well, and one of the most important elements of this that I don't think we've we've actually touched on directly that speaks to the importance of everything you just said mm. is is the fact that there's this misnomer associated with successful change of any kind. Mm. And that is, uh, you know, if you have an ability to see around corners, and connect the dots Mm. and be very anticipatory and planful about the need for change, Mm. somehow all of that feels more strategic and intentional. And there's plenty of examples of large scale transformational change that are consistent with all of those principles that Mm. I just mentioned. However, there's actually uh, many more examples of big change that the situation was unanticipated. Yeah. We didn't see it coming. We weren't prepared for it. We, we didn't see around any corners. I mean, mm. COVID was a perfect well, was example of this, you know, the last couple of years, right? Yeah. So success really wasn't about the anticipation. Mm-hmm. It mm-hmm. was about the agility and flexibility yeah. and responsiveness to the problem. One of my favorite quotes uh, that's in the book that I think really speaks to this is Mike Tyson a uh, oh, yes. former heavyweight boxer, you know, he was being interviewed for uh, in preparation for one of his heavyweight bouts. And the member of the media asked him the question, you know, what's your strategy for the fight? You know, and his response was, everybody has a plan until they get punched in the mouth. And I think it's really true of organizations that are planning uh, large scale transformational mm-hmm. change. You know, they do have a plan, they do have a strategy, they focus a lot on it, yeah. but they're so intent on executing that strategy. When they get punched in the mouth as they inevitably do Mm. uh, and something happens uh, that knocks everything off course they have no capacity to adjust Mm. or respond uh, and they get stuck uh, and Mm. they get frozen because the the reality of the situation isn't consistent with Mm. the plan that they put together which didn't anticipate the reality of the situation so uh, I think we've learned a lot uh, as human beings but also as organizations the last two two and a half mm. years with covid because mm. we've recognized that there were a lot of things that have had to happen in order for people and organizations to survive and thrive that weren't part of anybody's plan you know two or three mm. years ago uh, no, you have to absolutely. figure it out on the fly and that's maybe one of the best lessons of of uh, this book that we put together mm. is the importance of having the capacity to figure it out on the fly because quite often you must figure it out
0: on the fly. Mm. And so the time is running, but I would like you to, to ask you one last question. And just on that point of not being able to anticipate, so we're back to navigating uncertainty, aren't we? Would you have a last recommendation, thought, call for action for leaders who are sitting there thinking, okay, now I've understood why my transformation initiative isn't working. So what do I do?
1: Yeah, I I think if I was going to pick one thing Mm. to speak directly to, Mm. comment, it's understanding the importance of surrounding yourself with other people who are closer to the problem and the circumstance that might call for change than you are. Uh, Particularly, if you're in a position of leadership, I think we all tend to delude ourselves into believing that as leaders, we're supposed to know what's happening everywhere at all times uh, and have all the answers. Mm. I think neither of those things are actually true. Mm. Uh, And so you have to rely on other people around you Mm. who are a lot closer to the customer. They're a lot closer to the internal organizational inefficiencies. Mm. Uh, They're generally going to be a lot closer to what's happening, even. Uh, with competitors out in the marketplace if in fact they inter- interact with people out in mm. the marketplace. And all of that is organizational strength. You know, All of yeah, those people absolutely. and the insights that they have are, are all a strength of your organization if your culture and the environment that you've created uh, not only allows for that, but encourages that. That is an mm. extraordinarily uh, powerful strength That gives you competitive advantage compared to some of the companies against which you compete. If you have the capacity to hear, listen, Mm. learn from uh, others in the organization who have better insight and more direct access to key data than you Mm. do. Mm.
0: Thank you. I'm going to leave our listeners with that thought of collective wisdom. And I'm coming back to your 200 voices in under 200 pages and just how rich that can be. Ian, thank you so much for coming and sharing your research, your thoughts, your insight, your experience. Where can people find out more about you, your book, and what you do? That's
1: one-stop shop. uh, is a book-related website called uh, www.transformationalchangebook.com. People can find more information there about the contributing authors, including me, uh, some summaries of the various chapters of the book if they want to get a little bit better sense for what's in it. Uh, also direct access to purchase the book at a discount uh, through our publisher and uh, also a number of podcasts like this one Mm -hmm. uh, and others uh, that we've also uh, hung on the website so people have an opportunity to see and listen and learn uh, from some of the insights. That'll be the best place to
0: find us. Okay, excellent. Thank you. We hope you enjoyed this episode and the diverse insights and learnings it brought to you. And it's bye from me for now, and I'll see you soon for the next episode of Let's Talk Transformation.